I am not a foreign journalist who's in Syria for a short trip to do some reporting before heading back home. This is my home, and I should force these people to accept who I am. I should once again fight the same battle I had fought as a teenager, this time with strange, armed men in a chaotic corner of my country, known as the most dangerous area in the entire world for journalists. Welcome to the Media at Risk podcast. Those were the words of award-winning Syrian journalist and human rights activist Zainar Hayim, taken from her latest essay on what it was like to cover the war at home. My name is Natasha Yasbek, and I'm a doctoral candidate here at the Annenberg School for Communication. Today, we turn our conversation to Syria. We'll be talking about freedom, fear, and identity with Zena, and I'll let her introduce herself. I'm a Syrian journalist. I'm currently a refugee in the UK, and I work as a communication manager with the Institute for War and Peace Reporting. I lived most of my life in Syria, and when the uprising started, and then the war started, I was still living in Syria until 2016, where I was forced to go into displacements in Turkey, and then eventually in the UK. So your experience in Syria far predates the Syrian war. And your experience in the war is unique in that you stayed there so long and you were so close to the front lines. Tell us a little bit about life before the war. Um, Syria before the war, as I think many of the its parts now, were very much closed. The regime propaganda was the only thing that was available. Only the state media was allowed to... Uh, to be active. And even when we had a private sector, they were very much close to the regime or related to it, and they were not allowed to get out of the main lines. Everything was so restricted. We were raised to be afraid of each other, of strangers, of foreigners, only believed what the regime wants us to believe. And we also believed that wolves had ears. So we shouldn't be saying anything to anyone. Otherwise, the security forces would take revenge being detained in the Syrian context means like being dead until further notice. Was there a moment when you became aware of the centrality of fear and survival before you became aware of the spoken or the written word as a form of resistance to that as a journalist? At that year, I was 12 years old, and I think I heard my dad or someone else speaking about uh, Hafez al-Assad, who is the father of the current president, and speaking about the violations or the massacres that he has committed. And I decided that I hate him. And I made a mistake, and I mentioned that loudly in front of my mom. And that was the first time ever and the last time where she actually slapped me, saying, this is not true. We all love him, and uh, you can't even there to say that at your school. And I know in many cases, some some teachers even ask the children in the class, trying to get some information from them, especially the Fetoui teacher, which is like the military-related teacher that we had. She would ask the kids, and I'm speaking like elementary school, so you like Hafez, what are you hearing? Is your parents are um, pro the government? So they were actually trying to use the kids to know which families or which people are 
tempted or at least have an intention to oppose the regime. And that, as you can imagine, has a huge consequences, which will lead for the family to be arrested because the kid just said something. And everything was very much sourced and propaganda to make us, to force us to go into one direction. And if you don't go in that direction, the punishment and the consequences are very dangerous. So we were walking, as we call it in Arabic, on the edge of a sword. So when we finally had the chance to break it up, we broke it up. And then you find everyone holding a camera and everyone is turning. One of the girls, Ruqayya, who was eventually executed by Ruqayya Hassan. Yeah, in, in Raqqa. She, she, can't even, she didn't even call herself a journalist. All what she was doing is just writing what is happening in her hometown, in Raqqa, on her Facebook. There are many others who are doing that. They are news providers. They're providing content that no one else has an access to, to have that content, just because they know what it means not to be able to gain any kind of information and to live in a complete... Um, it, it was a prison. It was a prison when only some food and some basics were leaking in but you're not allowed to see the sky. You're not allowed to see what is life and how is life beyond those bars. So I think knowing that is the main motivation to try to break it in all the ways possible. You're describing a model of journalism that wasn't recognized as journalism not only by news organizations and not only because Facebook, for example, was the platform of publication, it wasn't recognized as journalism by the very people doing the journalism, what we would call on-the-ground reporting. But that changed fundamentally, drastically, over the course of the Syrian war. So today, Syrians are the day-to-day reporters on the ground for some of the biggest news organizations in the world. They report in Arabic, English, and images and video. And yet there is still such a lack of public awareness and, frankly, a lack of compensation for their work. Now, this strikes a chord close to my heart, as it's what I'm working on as a researcher. But it's also something that you've been exceptionally vocal about. You've worked for the BBC. You've produced stories on your own out of Syria. You've helped news groups procure and train stringers. What is it like for a Syrian journalist reporting for one of these lead news organizations from inside Syria today? I think the general case is disappointment. I can't even think of one uh, organization which were encouraged or hired people on the ground and provide them with all the rights that they're giving to the international staff. Even those who are really doing great work, but when it comes to the locals, they just stop In the best case scenarios, they avoid to hire locals so they don't have responsibilities. In the worst case scenarios, they just take them as consultants. So they're inside, but they're outside. Uh, They're with us, but they don't have any rights, any pensions, any health insurance. But sadly, I can't think of one good example. And how do you respond to, we hear this a lot, it's for their own protection that there's no paperwork involved, that their bylines are not showing up to which we've always responded, give them a pen name. Or ask them. Ask them whether they are ready to risk their name to be put there or they don't. I think 
يعني assuming that you know better about them is very much annoying. They are there. They know the risks. They understand the circumstances. If they say they don't mind for their full name to be there, you don't put it. If they think that it's fine, you put it. I think it is that simple. It depends on the story, on the circumstances. I know a journalist in Damascus who is still doing stories. She's not registered with the government, which makes her in a very critical position. She has been writing in a fake name for the last three, four years. But then she said, like, I don't have a record. I don't have a portfolio. I want to have it. So she started writing with her full name now. Surely different stories and different topics. It's mainly culture and um, things that are related to everyday life. She took a decision and she is dealing with the consequences. But forcing her to put or to remove her name is is like a very annoying decision to be taking without her consultation. Because it strips you of any power or agency completely. It does. At the same time, it, it, it has an indication that because we're in this prestigious position, we have the right to decide on your behalf. And you are the one on the ground, and you're the one who knows the risks and the circumstances far better than we do. I worked with BBC Arabic for one year, but I was mainly working in the newsroom, so I didn't have um, that much interactions. But my main um, interaction with the organizations who are working in Syria and the international journalist was when I went back and I started working for the IWPR. I was then trying to help the citizen journalists that I'm training and my friends and my colleagues to get published, to get noticed, to be in the international media. So I was really working 24 hours free of charge fixer, connecting them with international media. But I found it very difficult to follow up and cope with the kind of complaints that I kept getting. Once I even posted something like whom from my friends, if they had the ability, would sue an international media uh, outlet or a journalist. And more than 30 media activists commented, saying, sharing their stories. He took my pictures without my permission and then I wasn't credited. She used a footage and she told me she's going to pay me back and she hasn't. They used two of the three ideas that I suggested on them and they haven't credited me and so and so. And this is just in, in one piece of Syria and this is one piece of the country. And that's not just dangerous because you're taking advantage of uh, vulnerable people who don't have rights and they don't have a system that they can raise their complaint to, but just telling me because they think I have the backup of an organization and I can help them and I couldn't. But it's also very dangerous because it harms all the other international dedicated journalists who are planning to cover because it really breaks the trust between the two. And it makes them feel like all the international journalists who are coming are going to be fooling us. So this is the general concept. And only after four or five years of this incident, then the locals started demanding contracts. But they didn't even know what contracts is because we, in the Arab world and mainly in Syria, we don't deal with contracts. Our contracts is our word. And because they were not demanding that, they didn't know that they had rights and they lost it and they learned it in the very hard way. So when I felt really frustrated, I told them, why don't you name and shame? If we can't do anything else, 
just name and shame. And many of them were scared, like, but maybe we want to work with that agency or maybe that journalist could help us out working with those people. So they are more powerful. Maybe they, if we want, if we go to Turkey or to Europe, they can actually took us to trial. They're very vulnerable. They're already living in a war zone. They don't have any rights. They hardly make payments uh, for their families. They don't have any kind of insurance. They're not backed up. And then above all that being used. So you can imagine how vulnerable they feel, how weak they are. So none of them agreed to name and shame. Would you have name and shamed if you were still in there working? I would. You would? I would. And that's why I'm hated by many of the international groups and by the UN as well. So now you live in a, quote, safe, unquote, space. Tell me about what it feels like to be safe. I'm using air quotes. Um, I don't think I will ever feel safe. Well, first, I'm a refugee, so that indicates that I'm a pending citizen. That means I'm not completely stable. I'm still on a shaking ground. Papers are still a nightmare for me. I'm always scared that I'm going to be losing my travel document. I'm always scared that I will be losing my residency. Laws would change. I would be kicked out. I'd be deported. I'd be arrested for something that I don't know. So despite the fact that um, I have my full guaranteed asylum, beside the visas, beside not being able to travel to Turkey to see my family or whatever, not to mention uh, the security of my family who might be deported back to Syria because they don't have a paper. I physically, I'm not, I don't expect to... Uh, to find a bum on my door, as I was before. But mentally, um, I don't know what safe is. I think I've, I've never felt it, and I wouldn't know if I feel it because I've, I've never felt it before. And just to comment about naming and shaming, I started naming and shaming those organizations who invites mom to speak without paying for babysitting fees. So on that topic, on motherhood and specifically gender, you've written a lot about gender in journalism as well as gender in Syrian society. And it was actually your writings that stood out to me because I've always taken the abaya or the hijab when I have to wear it as, you know, this is part of the story. This is how I get access to something that's so important. It's just part of the work. And you've talked publicly, not only as a Syrian, but as a journalist, that this is something we need to think more critically about and not accept blindly. And that's a rare point to raise. So you've written an essay recently entitled Hurma, which is a something of a charged word in Arabic. Explain to us a little bit about that word. Hurma. Hurma is a word that is still being used in, in my conservative community. Um, so it's sadly um, still a term to describe dependent women who are good enough, quotes, quotes, uh, to be good daughters, good wives, bring up children and die. And as the proverb says in Arabic, the good woman is the one who moves from her family's house, husband's house, to grave. So this is really the life circle for the harma. It also implicates uh, 
that she doesn't have an opinion, she wouldn't do anything against the traditions, the community, the patriotic society she lives at. The struggle I had in those latest years where the extremists start to spread in northwest Syria is that I was moving between the Harma and myself every couple of months. When I'm inside, I was forcing myself to be Harma from outside and in my actions, low voice, no mixing with men, putting a huge amount of distance between me and anyone else, monitoring what I'm saying, monitoring my voice, where I'm moving and, and when. And then I go out and I suddenly become myself. I take off my conservative clothes, listen to louder music, go and dance and drink. So moving from this schizophrenic kind of situation and living in this schizophrenic kind of situation in two years, and then you lost it. Like inside, although I was Hirma, but I felt like I'm doing what I love to do and I am in the place that I belong among the people that I consider like my comrades and fellows and people. And outside, I am myself, but I don't have that cause and I'm not with the people that I want to be. So I was lost inside and outside. So it's like you're always you, but you're never fully you. It is. In the both cases, there was a part missing, and I'm, I'm certainly not close to think or to be considered as harma for anyone. Even like inside, when following all the rules of harma, I was clearly far from being one. Did that trigger any online backlash against your critique of the idea of harma, not only as a Syrian woman, but the journalistic acceptance of putting on the veil? to go do your story? It triggered mainly the Syrians who think that this is a very minor topic, Western-like kind of thing that I am speaking about just to gain uh, appraisals from the West, and God knows what West means in that context, criticizing that community or even shedding a light about it is something that's not expected. I even got criticism like, why did you write it in English? So they don't want only to control the context and my personal testimony, but also the language that I'm, I'm sharing my story with. You write in, in, in English only because you want to reach the Western audience. Maybe you're after um, a new award or to be famous. So that's why you're using your own communities to gain that, while those women international journalists go to the same areas that you're at, but instead of criticizing the communities, they highlight the misery and the bombing and the bad humanitarian situation. I was like, this is exactly what it is. I am from here. I belong. I care about the community. And I want to highlight those issues so we can speak about them, highlight them, and solve those unfair, obviously unfair issues. If I'm a Westerner, I'm here getting the story, getting whatever I'm here for and then get out. But yeah, it was it was harsh. I, I didn't respond to the comments, but many of them were mainly, um, some of them even challenged the, the things that I wrote, which is like personal experience saying, no, this has never happened, as if it's impossible in our communities to force girls to wear a headscarf. But the general term is that this is not important people are getting killed. So while you're speaking about being forced to wear a headscarf, this is very minor. Just one thing, 
I don't think that it's not important to speak to the Western audience, and that's why I participated in that chapter. So I wanted to say or to tell them what does it mean to be a woman reporter covering our war because all the perspectives, all the books that are published by international researchers or journalists about Syria are told from their own outsider's eyes without really giving that perspectives of the story. Well, what has changed? You know, you were so dedicated and you're still so dedicated not just to Syria, but also to journalism, freedom of the press, and freedom of expression. And you've worked with and for news organizations, some of it free of charge. And now to hear you saying, you know, I'm not necessarily interested in telling these stories, my stories, to these audiences outside of home, what has changed? I'm tired. I'm not hopeful anymore. You're not hopeful? Nope. How do you feel? I feel ti- I feel tired. I think, um, and I would rather keep this tiny energy that is keeping me going to myself and to other things, which is still related to documentation. It's still related to keeping those stories. I I wrote the book in Arabic, but I couldn't find a publisher because I don't think any Arabic publisher would be interested in such a content. So I'm trying to write it in English. So hopefully. After writing it in English and publishing it, I would get someone who would be interested in Arabic. Okay, let's lay this out. Mm-hmm. The stories that you wanted to tell, these are the stories that you didn't tell or couldn't tell when you were working as a professional hired journalist. You wrote them down in Arabic. And you don't necessarily want to tell them to an English-speaking audience. However, you cannot get an Arabic publisher to publish them unless and until you write them in English, you get the prestigious English publisher, and then they will back-translate them to Arabic. Yes, and I got more than 14, 15 rejections from Arabic publishing houses on the Arabic manuscript. And I got five English interested in only the idea without even writing it in English yet. What does this do to your relationship with the Arabic language and the Arabic-speaking world? It doesn't affect it that much, to be frank. I know this is like... If I was writing something pro Qatari, pro Saudis, I would be able to get it. It's mainly because it's independent. It touched on taboos. So I'm not expecting it to be easily accepted by the Arabic world, and I don't care. But when I finally be able to publish it, I might put it into articles just to make it reach the wider audience. But only after having this full document just written, printed out of my mind, put out there, and I want to turn the page. I want to finish that stage, and I think the book is the final stage where I can say, I did what I could, and I can start over, finally. You did what you could for? For Syria, for my country. And the next chapter will or will not involve? God knows what, but I hope I can be a bit disattached. If you could go back, would you do the same? Would you stay? Would you report? Would you continue to help others report even after you leave? I don't know. I think I thought about that. And I believe I told myself whether I can survive more in regime-held areas and keep low profile to stay where I always wanted to live at, which is Damascus. 
it was my final destination. So I thought whether I can survive for a year or two. And when I was speaking about the, my friend, the woman journalist who is still in Damascus, I, I felt really, I invade her. Like, you could stay. You're still there. But then I know myself. I wouldn't keep silence. I will be caught uh, because I am vocal uh, and I'm stubborn and I wouldn't just let go of the violations when I see them and use fake name. It's just very difficult for me. So I think even if I was planning for something else, if I go back, everything is going to be happening exactly the same because I am the same. Thanks for listening. Today's episode was produced by me, Natasha Yazbek, and edited by Jasmine Erdner. We'd like to thank Emily Plowman, Joanna Berkner, and Waldo Aguirre. Barbie Zelizer directs the Center for Media at Risk. To find out more, visit our website, www.ascmediarisk.org.